was talking to somebody recently about uh, the human body. <clears throat> you know, the girls have so many science classes at Washburn between nursing and chemistry, and evolution is at Washburn, like most other institutions, a given. Um, but you know, when you look at the complexity of the human body, it's just hard to say that these incredibly complex systems occurred through random processes and chance over time. You know, the more you learn about the human body, kind of as the pinnacle, we could say, of creation, uh, the more it yells for a designer or a creator. And you know, when your body's working right, it's great. Or apart from other issues that we deal with in life, physically at least, when the bodies are working right, life's a lot easier. And we appreciate how finely tuned and how well put together they are. Um, but you know, living in this life, that our bodies are prone to damage, to injury from without. And they're also prone to disease or all kinds of problems from within, too. And we live in the age of science or medicine in which chemistry and biology and research in these areas has been incredibly helpful as far as helping our bodies when they're down. Um, you know, not that long ago, my grandmother died of tuberculosis. My dad remembers all kinds of people dying for lack of common antibiotics that we take, just take for granted today. Um, if you've got a cold, in fact, I took cold medicine this morning so I could speak clearly. And if my head hurts, I take Tylenol. We've got all kinds of things that we can take as at least short-term fixes or remedies if our body's a little out. We take these things for granted, but you know, if you just went back even 50 years ago, you wouldn't have, much less 200 years ago. In 1796, a British physician by the name of Edward Jenner was looking into the issue of smallpox and cowpox. And in England at this time, smallpox killed people all the time, all over. In fact, in colonial America, it was the same thing. And Edward Jenner, took a really bold step and kind of an outlandish step towards trying to cure this disease of smallpox. He took the gross fluid from a cowpox off of a person and he injected it into a healthy young boy. This looked like madness. But he'd noticed that people who, who had cowpox typically didn't get smallpox. So he takes the oozing fluid, isn't this great, Adrian, from a cowpox, injects it into a perfectly healthy young boy. He waits six weeks, and then he takes the <clears throat> ooze of a smallpox and injects it into this healthy young boy, and the boy remains free of smallpox. And Edward Jenner started this process, which was still going on today, of looking to the source of the disease for the cure. So vaccinations today go back to this time. And if you think more recently, in the last hundred years, the name of Jonas Salk became a household name because he was the first <clears throat> to be successful in creating a vaccine for polio. And I don't know how many of you in this room have known someone who as a child had polio. We've known at least two adults, actually both of whom have died now, who were lame all their life because they got polio in their youth. It was a terrible disease. 
before salt, this was affecting over 50,000 Americans every year were coming down with polio, and it was disabling, incredibly disabling. So Jonas Salk looked to the disease itself, just like Jenner had, for the cure. And he found a way to kill the polio virus and take the dead virus and inject it into healthy people. And, of course, they built up the antibiotic that would keep them from getting the disease. So just like Jenner, Salk looked to the disease itself as a means of curing the disease. This sounds backwards, and it doesn't appear to make sense. But in both cases, it was looking to the cause of the problem to find the cure for the problem. To avoid the disease and the death that came from it, they looked to the disease itself. That's our introduction this morning into a couple of texts. We're going to start in Numbers 21. You can turn there if you want. Uh, Eustace Scrub is a great name for a really wretched kid in C.S. Lewis's uh, story, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And Eustace is known because he's such a miserable, self-centered, griping, complaining little wretch of a boy. And he finds something to complain about at every turn. Every turn. He was just like Israel in the wilderness. If you read the stories from the Exodus on, Israel, in the process of being delivered from Egypt, and then in their wilderness wanderings, they complain at every turn. Once they're out of Egypt, they complain about water, water quality. Then they complain about lack of water. They complain about meat or too much meat. They complain about who's a priest and who isn't. In Numbers 21, they're complaining again. We'll read verses 4 through 19. It says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey and And up to this point, they're actually coming up. They're going to go around the Dead Sea on the east side of Jordan, and they're getting ready, actually, to go into the Promised Land. The trouble here is they've asked Edom for permission to go through their land. The Edomites have said, no way. So if, oriented the way you are, if this is Israel and this is the Dead Sea, Edom lives down here. So they have to go around Edom to come back up instead of a straight line up the Jordan and the Dead Sea. They've got to go around, and they're not liking it too well. And the people spoke against God and Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The the miserable food is manna. I mean, they've been living on This has been their sustenance. This was God's gracious provision every day. We loathe this miserable food, the food of heaven. And the Lord, in response, sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. And set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on the standard. And it came about that if a a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So, 
they're bickering again, and God is not pleased again. And this is just the latest of many, many judgments because of this condition. And in this judgment, God sends these fiery serpents. And when they bite you, you die. And the people now, they're repenting. Moses, help us go to God. And so this is God's provision for the bite of the serpent that brings death. God's provision to Moses, he says, you make a fiery serpent a shining image of the serpent, a shining image of the creature that bites you and brings death, you make an image of that, and you stick it up on a pole in the middle of the camp of Israel, and if anyone gets bit by the serpent and they're going to die, you tell them to look at that image, and they'll live. So, at the end of that passage, Moses made a bronze serpent. He takes a metal, bronze, and you know if bronze is burnished it's shiny so this looked like the shiny serpent it's the image of the serpent shiny bronze serpent he set it on a standard set it high up on a pole in the midst of the camp of israel and it came about that if a serpent bit any man when he looked to the bronze serpent he lived so god's remedy for the death dealing serpents was for israel to look to the image of death a shining, fiery serpent lifted high up on a pole, and when they'd look, they would live. So the remedy sounds odd. This is like the vaccines. You look at the symbol of death, and you live. Now, this, is, this was God's provision. You look to the symbol of death, and I will heal you, and you'll live. They didn't make it up. They didn't offer sacrifices. They didn't go any, through any purification rites. And, you know, under the law of Moses, given earlier, there are all kinds of things you do if you sin. God didn't require any of that. He just said, if you get the bite of the serpent, look to the image of death, the image of the serpent on the pole, you'll be healed and you'll live. Now, bring all of this into John's Gospel, chapter 3 which is where we left off a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> if you remember, John 3 is primarily the interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. It's the conversation by night in which Nicodemus, this Jewish leader teacher, has come to Jesus. And if you remember, Nicodemus was poised to have a nice lengthy discussion with Jesus and probably get his question answered and be polite. And Jesus cuts through all of that and says, Nick, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. The famous phrase, you must be born again, comes from this passage. And Nicodemus is having trouble understanding what is this about. If you remember, Jesus said, you should know this. Nicodemus, you should know this. And probably referring to Ezekiel 36 and 37, in which God had said there'd come a time when he would put a new heart and a new spirit inside his people. And then they would understand. They'd have true knowledge. And Nicodemus was having trouble understanding it. And Jesus says, man, I'm telling you this. This is earthly wisdom, Nick. This has been given before. How would you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And in closing his talk with Nicodemus and bringing to a close his discussion about the necessity and the means of new birth, of gaining eternal life, he brings the point home to himself in John 3, 13 through 15. And he says to Nicodemus, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. 
That is, though Nicodemus is having difficulty understanding the things Jesus is speaking of, Jesus speaks with the authority of heaven. He's the one who's been there. He's talking about that which he knows. And closing up his discussion with Nicodemus, he says in 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. So in this conversation with Nicodemus about being born again and how do you enter this new life, Jesus quotes Numbers 21, the story we just read about Israel in the wilderness and the serpents and the death and the bronze serpent on the pole. And he reminds Nicodemus that in that story, in order to live, in order to be healed from the bite of the serpent, Israel had to look to the serpent, the image of the serpent, the image of judgment and death, lifted up on a pole in their midst in order to be healed. All they had to do was look. All they had to do was look. And they'd be healed from death. That was all that was required. Jesus says, basically, he is, if you will, the serpent on the pole. And he says he is going to be lifted up like the serpent on the pole was. Now, lifted up probably means at least a couple things, but certainly in its most important context here, lifted up is crucifixion. Lifted up is crucifixion. I've not seen the movie yet, but certainly all the buzz is about Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion. And the Passion is the story of the last 12 hours of Jesus' life and primarily the crucifixion. And not to be gross, but I'm going to focus for a little bit on on crucifixion and what it was and a little bit of what it looked like. Um, We have lost the sense of uh, crucifixion and crosses in our culture and in our times. Um, but we're, we're transporting ourselves back to the day in which crucifixion uh, was the semi-norm, if you will. Crucifixion was the, considered the worst way to die. Uh, the, the Romans didn't originate this. The Persians did. But the Romans, as they did many other things, perfected it. And it was the way to kill someone over a lengthy period of time, causing as much pain as possible and causing emo- as much emotional pain and shame as possible at the same time. And it was reserved for the vilest or the worst of criminals. So when we talk about crucifixion, this, isn't, this is no sanitized anything. This was the dirtiest, grimiest, worst way to die, reserved for the worst of society. Physically, almost always, before someone was crucified by the Romans, they were flogged. And this flogging... If you just were, were whipped with a leather whip, that would be bad. It would be terrible. But when the Romans flogged someone, the catanine tails they took, a handle with several cords of leather on it, wasn't just leather cords, but the ends of those cords had leather, or excuse me, lead balls and or sharp ends of bone or metal on the end. So when you were flogged, you not only got the sting and the welts and the tearing and the burning of the leather straps, But when these lead balls hit your skin, they produced very deep bruising. And these bruises would welt up with blood. And of course, as they were struck with successive blows, these welts would burst, producing lots of bleeding. These sharp, jagged ends 
would not only tear your skin, but they would tear into your muscle so that the person's, your skin and muscle, was literally being ripped open. The flogging (coughs) itself was so brutal and so destructive to a human that if they weren't careful, they would kill the prisoner during this procedure alone. And in fact, the ability of the prisoner to endure the crucifixion itself was in large measure determined by how severe the flogging was. These guys, after they were flogged, if they were flogged severely, they were bleeding so profusely that they were suffering significant loss of blood and therefore strength and the ability to actually to continue to live at all. So depending on how severe this was, the person could live uh, more or less time on the cross. A short duration on the cross was three or four hours, but it could, if the flogging was not severe, it could be three or four days. So they started with the flogging. The next thing they did was they were required to carry their own cross from the site that they were whipped or flogged to the place of crucifixion. And when it says they carried their cross, they did not carry a two-piece cross. They carried the cross member. The, the, the Latin word is patibulum. They carried the cross member of the cross only. This thing was a rough wooden beam. They said typically it would weigh between 75 and 125 pounds. Now you can imagine in Jesus' case, he had to walk about a third of a mile from inside Jerusalem up to the hill to be crucified. But short or long, you can imagine for a medium-sized Jewish man of the time, the cross member, the patibulum, could weigh almost as much as you. You've just been flogged. You're bleeding profusely, incredible pain, and now they strap this heavy, rough beam. It's scraping against all the wounds on your shoulders and back, of course, and now you're constrained to carry this to the place in which you'll actually be crucified. Once they got the prisoner to the place of crucifixion, and typically for the Romans outside the city, um, you know, these guys meant business, they left the Latin stipus or the poles on which the cross member would be hung. They were left in place. So when you went into or out of the city, at least through that northwest gate, you saw the stipus, the pole for which crucifixion uh, was attached. You saw it when you went out and when you came in. It was a symbol. It was there. This is the end of those who cross the Roman government. So you would get out to the place of crucifixion. They would throw the prisoner down. And, of course, every violent movement for these, for anyone that had just been flogged, rips open again, anything that was crusting over. And when they threw them to the ground, they would then put a four to seven inch uh, steel spike through their wrist. The scriptures say hand, and there's no confusion here. The wrist was considered part of the hand. Um, The hand, the flesh in the hand is not strong enough to hold the human body up. The spikes went actually through the wrist between the radius and the ulna, and, and all the connective tissue here is strong enough to hold the body, to suspend the weight of the body. So they would throw them to the ground. They would put those steel spikes through their wrists. Once they got them secured by spikes to the cross member, to the patibulum, they would raise them up. Depending on how high the pole was, they would use ladders. Sometimes they would use a bracket that several soldiers would lift them up. And then it was like a mortise and a tenon in which the patibulum with the prisoner on it would be set down on top of the stipus or the vertical member. Once they were in that position, then they would take the third nail and they would put it, put one foot on top of the other, and put the same kind of spike through the foot. 
the location of these spikes was uh, meant to do a couple things. It minimized bleeding. You didn't die from these wounds because you didn't sever any major arteries. But it was also meant to maximize pain because the spike through the wrists would go through the medial nerve and the spike through the feet goes through another major nerve. So here's this prisoner. They've been whipped brutally. They're bleeding already. Now they're spiked through the wrists and through the feet to gain maximum pain. Maximum pain, but little blood loss. The, the effects on the prisoner on the cross at this point, maybe they'll just die from blood loss, you know, depending on the scourging. But if they don't, the first thing that comes into play as far as their shortened life now is the weight of their own body on their arms, pulling down their torso and their chest. They can't breathe properly. They can take a breath in, but because of the weight of their body on their torso, their diaphragm and chest muscles cannot work properly. They can't exhale. So in order to exhale, they have to push the weight of their body on one steel spike in their feet to relieve the weight off their arms so that they can exhale and take in another breath. So one of the common causes of death for these folks, especially the ones that hung on the cross for a prolonged period of time, was asphyxiation slow asphyxiation. They couldn't move enough air out, in and out of their chest to live. So if they didn't bleed to death, they would suffocate, essentially, over time. The prisoners were also stripped. You know, they had nothing but a loincloth on. It was to expose their bodies to the elements, whether that was sun or rain or whatever, and also just to shame them. So physically, this was the means of causing as much pain as much grief, as much shame as possible. So when we talk about the cross today, we lose sight in a way these folks never would have that the Roman cross was the ultimate symbol of shame, pain, judgment, and death. When we apply this to Jesus, and I think this is primarily where the film The Passion goes, um, I think we can lose sight of... of, uh, another important element with Jesus. Jesus was not the only person crucified. The Romans crucified countless people. Jesus physically suffered what many, many other people suffered. He was not unique in the physical sufferings he endured on the cross or before it. The unique quality of Jesus' crucifixion was not physical primarily. It was spiritual And I think it's easy to lose sight of this, especially if we see a graphic depiction of the physical issues related to crucifixion or scourging. Remember that for Jesus, he's the eternal son of God. He is a member of the Trinity. He has been for eternity past, as we can say, always and ever been in unbroken fellowship with his Father and the Spirit. But once he's put on the cross and becomes the sin-bearer, this one who knew no sin personally, once he becomes the sin-bearer, the Father leaves him. The Father breaks fellowship with the Son and leaves him. And this is when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at this point, this isn't just physical suffering, as bad as that is, 
This is God the Son being cut off from God the Father. This had never happened before, will never happen again. And this was the unique suffering that Jesus had on the cross. In this sense, we could say other people have experienced what Jesus did physically. We could say we can imagine the pain physically to some degree that Jesus experienced in crucifixion. We cannot experience, thank God, and I don't think we can imagine the spiritual loss, the spiritual pain Jesus experienced on the cross when his father withdrew from him because he was making him sin on our behalf. That's what pictures can't show us. So Jesus experienced both the physical, gruesome procedures of the crucifixion itself, but in addition to that, he did what no one else has ever had, which was this eternal fellowship with the Father broken off and cut off. So when Jesus says, like the serpent, the Son of Man will be lifted up, he'll be lifted up, like Moses' serpent, he's going to be lifted up in crucifixion and stuck on a pole. Now, like the serpent on the pole, the serpent on the pole was the symbol of judgment and death, and Israel looks to it, the cross is meant to become the ultimate symbol of judgment and death. And Jesus says that's the position he's going to occupy for us so that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. So go back to Numbers 21 for just a second. A Jew was bit by the snake, and he knows the bite of the snake means death. What does he do? He's commanded to look to the raised serpent, and he'll live. Look to the symbol of judgment and death, and live. Jesus says to Nicodemus, put this back in context in John 3, He says to Nicodemus, and to you and I, and to anyone else in the world, who wants the new birth, who wants eternal life, who wants to become a member of the kingdom of God, he says that just like those Jews look to the serpent, the symbol of judgment and death, to live, you and I are constrained, there's one provision for salvation, to look to the Son of Man lifted up on the pole in order to live. Look to the symbol, the ultimate symbol, of judgment and death, Jesus on the cross. Uh, There's so much symbolism here. I do think it's interesting in Genesis 3. Do you remember what God said, one of the uh, earliest uh, prophetic passages about a Messiah says that the descendant or the seed of Eve would be bitten on the heel by the serpent, but he would crush the serpent's head. And you have both of these images brought together in John 3. Jesus is like the serpent, the symbol of death, on the pole. And in being on the pole, in the crucifixion, he is bit by the serpent, but he crushes the serpent head in his resurrection. Concerning this, the cross or the crucifixion or looking to Jesus on a cross, a crucified Messiah, I want to read a couple passages out of the New Testament. And again, this is because we lose the sense of this. You remember that in Jesus' day and in Paul's, when you told Jews or Gentiles that your heroic leader was the victim of Roman crucifixion, this was a bad joke. 
no one would have associated with someone who was crucified. It was shameful. They were the lowest of the low. So Paul says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That is the message of Jesus Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation to all who will believe. Or in John 3 and Numbers 21 lingo, we could say to all those who will look. The temptation was to be ashamed of a Messiah who had been crucified. In 1 Corinthians, Paul goes to Corinth, this city that's so much like the United States, materially wealthy, part of, a privileged part of the Roman Empire, the most powerful kingdom on earth. Uh, philosophically, academically sophisticated. This was the United States, if you will, of the day. Paul goes there and he says this, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. The word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He comes to this elite, philosophically sophisticated group, and he says, I don't want to talk about anything sophisticated. I want to talk about a crucifixion and a man who was crucified so that you can be saved. He says later in the same chapter, we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, this is a stumbling block. The Jews didn't want to hear this. This didn't align with their understanding of what their Messiah would look like, although it's straight out of Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53. It's all there, but it's not, it was not their expectation. To Gentiles, preaching Christ crucified is foolishness. It's folly. What do you mean some guy we, as Romans, crucified is the Savior of the world? You've got to be kidding. But to those who are the called Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ crucified, Jesus Christ on a cross, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in Galatians 6.14, he says, May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, this articulate, well-educated spokesman says, if I'm going to boast about anything, it won't be about any achievement I have, no ability I have, the only thing I would care to boast about is Jesus Christ, is Christ crucified, who he is and what he did for me. Peter, who was at the crucifixion, says in his first epistle of Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds his crucifixion, you were healed. You were healed. Now, <clears throat> what happened to an Israelite in the wilderness who got bit by the snake and who said, you know, I don't care to look at that serpent on a pole. That's not my thing. Uh, it's too foolish. Or, I don't like serpents, I'm not going to look that way. What would happen to that Jew bitten by that snake? They would die. They would die. There was only one provision. There was only one remedy for the bite. One remedy, one only, and it was simple. It required no effort. All they had to do was look. 
And if they chose not to, they died. And what happens today to the person who refuses to look to the Messiah hung on a cross, Christ and Him crucified? What happens to the people who are interested in new birth, a better way, a, a better life, etc.? What happens to folks who say, but no thanks, not that way? They will die. They will die. There's only one provision. The cross is absolutely the ultimate symbol of judgment and death. Now, we've, I think in our minds, we've sanitized it. We put it up on our churches. We wear it as jewelry. It's the symbol of Christianity, which is fine. It's just that it's lost its gruesome reality in our minds. It is the ultimate symbol of judgment and death. And Jesus was on it. He was on the pole, lifted up between heaven and earth for you and me. And then the one who suffers the most gruesome death physically and the one who suffered the loss of fellowship with his father spiritually says to anyone who wants new birth, eternal life says, all you have to do is look to me. Just like the Jew in the wilderness You don't have to contrive anything complex. You don't have to work over long at anything. You don't have to figure anything out. All you have to do is look to me. All you have to do is trust in me. You remember the theme of John's gospel is, you want life? Believe in the Son. And it's as true today as it was in Moses' day. When they looked, they lived. When they looked, they lived. I want to close with a poem. This was in the front of a book that my girls have inherited from Grace Robinson. This was a poem her dad glued into a book. It's called At the Cross by Sir John Stainer. Is it nothing to you? Behold me and see, pierced through and through with countless sorrows, and all is for you. For you I suffer, for you I die. Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? O men and women, your deeds of shame, your sins without reason and number and name, I bear them all on the cross on high. Is it nothing to you? Is it nothing to you that I bow my head and nothing to you that my blood is shed? O perishing souls, to you I cry. Is it nothing to you? O come unto me, O come unto me, by the woes I have borne, by the dreadful scourge and the crown of thorns, by these I implore you to hear my cry, is it nothing to you? O come unto me, this awful price, redemption's tremendous sacrifice is paid for you, is paid for you, O why will you die, O come unto me? Let's pray. Lord, we have all been bitten by the serpent of sin and death, and we are lost and hopeless without you, apart from your intervention. Lord, eternity will not be long enough for us to thank you for sending Jesus Christ, your Son, your only your precious, your beloved Son, to come to the earth, to live as one of us, and then to become the Lamb of God, slain on the cross, blood poured out, the life of the innocent, 
the blood of the innocent to cover the sins of the wicked. That's us. Lord, thanks that you've made salvation so easy. You've done all the work and you simply invite us as the Jews in the wilderness to look, to look at the symbol of death and judgment and in the looking to live. Lord Jesus, thanks for suffering both physically and spiritually. Father, thank you for taking our sins and allowing your Son to bear them for us. Father, I pray that when we are tempted to feel embarrassed about naming the name of Christ, or when we are tempted to feel squirrely or ashamed or want to hide in revealing to others that we follow this crucified Savior, help us to remember what he did for us. Help us to be like Paul and to make our boasts not those who think well of us, not those who accept us, not any kind of earthly success, but Lord, help us to make with Paul our boast a crucified and risen Savior, Christ and Him crucified. Father, thanks that all the work is done for us and you simply invite us to look and to live. Lord Jesus Christ, author of all life, we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.